Amen. Amen. Thanks, Ben. Uh, If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Acts chapter 2. While you get settled, you'll notice in your bulletin, and also you'll see, you'll hear on Sundays us talking about, you'll see in the transit that comes out each week, that over the next month or so, really in the month of October, there are going to be three kind of large all-church opportunities. One is on the 15th. That's an opportunity to come and serve here at the church, just kind of cleaning up, doing some work around our grounds. Um, That's on the 15th. On the 30th is our all-church worship service, which is going to be 1030 at Liberty High School, one service that morning. And then on October 31st, this trunk or treat at Manor Hill. And so three different opportunities to be engaged as a whole church. You know, most Sundays or in small groups, we're kind of split out over three services or split out in different groups or your kids partake in different ministries that are kind of sectioned out. In October, there's going to be three opportunities for us to be together as one church. And if you're someone who's new here and you're looking for opportunities to connect, that's three opportunities to do that here on the 15th, at Liberty High School on the 30th, and then at Manor Hill on the 31st. Encourage you to take part of those in, in, in those. We're going to keep communicating about them so you'll hear about them a lot over the next few weeks, but Opportunities to connect, opportunities to serve, opportunities for us to be engaged with our community. Um, we're excited about all of that, but there's going to be a lot going on in October. We hope that you'll, you'll partake with us. If you've got your Bible open there to Acts chapter 2, this passage that we're working with this morning is very popular, incredibly well-known. Um, it's all about the church, what the church looks like how it was functioning in Jerusalem, what that early church, first church, from 30,000 feet, what was this place like? And you don't have to look far in our world today to find frustrations or complaints about the local church, whether as like a broad construct in America, the church, or as local entities. And many of those frustrations and those complaints are justified. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised If there are some in here this morning who have frustrations or complaints about this church, your experience here at it, your relationships with people within it, or on any number of things. The reality is that churches are made up of broken people. Broken people saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus who are being slowly, sometimes frustratingly slowly transformed into the image of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And because there are no collections of perfect people, there are therefore no perfect churches. Charles Spurgeon says it this way, if you wait for a perfect church, you must wait until you get to heaven. And even if you could find a perfect church on earth, I am sure they would not admit you to their fellowship, for you yourself are not perfect. What we have in our text this morning is not the blueprint for the perfect church. In fact, what we have in our text this morning is often something that's used to kind of romanticize about an idealized version of the church that then allows us to be frustrated with the actual reality of our churches and thus potentially never to engage. What we have in front of us is this high-level view for what life looked like in the first church. Now, that first church was imperfect but beautiful, And both its beauties and its imperfections are visible at points all throughout the book of Acts. That church was founded by, grown by, and empowered by the Holy Spirit to do the work that the Holy Spirit intends to do, which is magnify and glorify Jesus in and through God's people. 
The same is true today. God is building his church to accomplish his mission through the Jesus-magnifying work of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see what that looked like in Jerusalem in the early days of the church this morning. This is a short passage, and so if you're able, comfortable, would you stand while we read from God's word? If you have a Bible there in front of you and you want to follow along, I am beginning in Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 42, and I'll read through the end of the chapter. It says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. God, we pray that this morning, as we look at your word, that this wouldn't be an exercise of just filling our minds with more facts about a passage in scripture. God, but would you open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, our minds to the truth of your word? Would you transform us by your word? Would your Holy Spirit impress your word deeply into our hearts? God, would you work powerfully in this community of believers to magnify and glorify Jesus so that others would know the truth of who he is and what he's done and what it means to be saved. God, would you mold us into a people who live humbly and joyfully under the rule and reign of Christ for the proclamation of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. My hope this morning is to get a little bit of like a rolling start into our passage Oftentimes, and, and this, is not, this is not a criticism, but oftentimes I think when we look at or we talk about or think about this passage, we sort of do so as if there's all of scripture and then there's this paragraph description of the early church that exists as like an addendum at the back or something that's separated from the rest of the Bible. But this happens in the context of Luke's description in Acts chapter 2 of the early proclamation of the gospel in Jerusalem through the apostles. And so I want to get a little bit of a rolling start to how we end up at Acts 2, 42 to 47. Then we're going to work our way through it, get a bird's eye view of life in the earliest days of the Jerusalem church, both the church's practices, but also the results of those practices. And then I hope to draw out a couple of practical and pastoral implications for this local church today. The landing point is this, that life in the local church is defined by the Jesus-magnifying work of the Holy Spirit among God's people. Life in the local church is defined by the Jesus-magnifying work of the Holy Spirit among God's people. If you have a Bible open there in front of you, maybe on your phone you need to scroll up a little bit, jump up to verse 37. Most of Acts chapter 2 is a sermon that Peter preaches after the Holy Spirit fills the apostles in this house 
in Jerusalem. A crowd is drawn. Peter stands up. He gives a lengthy sermon. And then starting in verse 37, he calls the listeners of that sermon to action. When they heard this, the sermon, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, repent and be baptized, each of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Repent and be baptized. God's grace in the presence of the Holy Spirit helps us to see the need for Jesus. And when we do that, we repent turning from our sin and turning to Christ, coming under his rule and his reign. We're saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus and we're baptized as an act of obedience that makes outwardly visible that inward saving thing that's happened inside of us. Our baptism professes outwardly that inwardly we've received God's grace for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. We're coming under his rule and his reign But that baptism also signals not just this internal thing that's happened, but it also signals to a local congregation that we're now entering into the the church, big C, but also this thing has happened internally that has saved us. We're proclaiming that to a group of believers in a local context. That's That's what happens in baptism. So Peter says, repent, be saved, and be baptized. Make that profession outwardly. Then he goes on. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, as many as our Lord, the Lord our God will call. The power that these people in this crowd saw on display as the Holy Spirit filled those early believers, that's available to everyone, Peter says. That promise is for you. Joel chapter two, the Holy Spirit will fill old men, young men, women, children, everyone. Everyone will be sealed by the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, be filled with the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you. God takes up residence within his people by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Every single person that God calls to himself receives that gift. And then... Verse 50, so those who accepted his message were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 people were added to them. 3,000 people are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They're baptized and they're brought into the life of the community that exists among the early followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. They're brought into the church. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. To borrow from Francis Chan, the Holy Spirit that fills these early believers does more than just sort of help them out a little bit. He he reorients everything, turns the very nature of their relationships from individual-focused to Christ-focused. And what we see is Luke gives us this bird's-eye view of the workings of the earliest days of the church in Jerusalem is what happens as the Holy Spirit shifts the lives of God's people moves them under the rule and reign of Christ, that Jesus would be magnified. And so I actually want to start this by jumping to the end of the passage. Verse 47, last sentence. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. What's the result of what's happening within the life of that church? Before we even get into sort of breaking down what's going on, the result is Christ is being magnified 
glorified and people are being saved. Like the Holy Spirit is moving among this group of 3,000 some people in Jerusalem. And as he does so, Christ is magnified and individuals are saved. We often read this passage and we think to ourselves, I want that kind of church for me. Like, I want to find this sort of place for me. But the result of the passage is that this sort of place exists that others are saved. That's the thrust of what's happening in Acts 2, 42 to 47. 3,000 people are saved and added to the church. Here's what it looked like. And continually, others were being saved and added to the church. This account ought to make us want to say, I want this kind of church for the glory of Jesus, not primarily for the service of my interests. So with that kind of framing, we're gonna take a look at what Luke gives us in this section. We're gonna do it a little bit out of order, but we're not gonna skip anything. My hope is that we can kind of work in a logical sort of way. So what are the practices or the rhythms that exist within the Jerusalem church? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus as his people pursue his word over their own thoughts. We're told that the people of this church are devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now that's worth stopping for a second. Why doesn't it just say that they were devoted to scripture, or the, the word of God? They were devoted to studying the Old Testament. We're told that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching. Now the apostles were uniquely equipped and empowered by the Holy Spirit to take Old Testament scriptures. That's all that these individuals had. And then to read them or explain them through the lens of what Jesus had just done. We saw Peter do this in his Pentecost sermon. He stands up and he uses Joel chapter two, Psalm 16, to explain both what's happening with the Holy Spirit, but also the resurrection of Jesus. And he's doing so in light of everything that's just happened in Jerusalem at the end of Jesus's life. The apostles' teaching is built on the word of God in what we know as the Old Testament. Sermons in the book of Acts, writings in the epistles make that clear. But they're interpreting those scriptures for faithful Jewish men and women here in Jerusalem in light of Jesus. And one work that the Holy Spirit does among the people of God in the church is to shift us from being people who live our lives based on our own thoughts or the leading thoughts of our day to being people who base our lives on God's thoughts as given to us in his word. And we shouldn't miss the significance of that realignment. Our default position is to engage with something that happens around us and to say, what do I think about that? How do I explain that? Or to see something that happens around us and go to like trusted individuals and say, well, what do they say about that? What does my preferred social media influencer have to say about that? What does my preferred news outlet have to say about that? What does my preferred talking head have to say about that? We shouldn't miss that what happens here is a total realignment of that. They're devoted not to any of those outside sources, but to the word of God in light of who Jesus is. And the apostles are explaining that to them. 
And because Jesus is magnified on every page of scripture, as the Holy Spirit rearranges that default functioning in our heart, Jesus is then magnified before our hearts and our minds and our eyeballs as we engage with scripture. Second, they devoted themselves to, I'm gonna jump to the end of that verse, prayer. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus as his people pursue dependence upon God over self-reliance. Prayer signifies that shift. We're pretty good at being dependent upon ourselves. That's kind of a hallmark of being American. Independent, individualistic. I can take care of myself. I don't need anybody's help. The church here realizes that they're dependent on God. And one thing that the Holy Spirit does inside the people of God is help us understand just how deep our dependency really is. Now, being devoted to prayer is more than just praying at meals or before the sermon or in transitions during the worship service. Being devoted to prayer is both a posture of the heart and an activity of the will. Our heart posture is shifted from one that is dependent upon me to one that's dependent upon God. Any significant spiritual thing that's going to happen in your life is going to happen as a result of the power of God, not because you somehow pulled yourself up by your bootstraps and made something happen. We need heart postures that understand that. But being devoted to prayer is also a shift in the activity of our will, our actions. If we're gonna be devoted to prayer, we actually have to shift around the time and space on our calendar so that we can be intentional about prayer. Now we're told later in the New Testament to be constantly in prayer. So that's something that's running in your heart and your mind all the time as you understand just how dependent you are. But we should also be gathering together in times of prayer, setting aside times of prayer for our own selves. And that requires a shift in our actions, a shift in our will. Not only that, but prayer is a significant differentiator between those inside the church and those outside the church. Sending positive vibes or best wishes or just kind of thinking of someone else. That's what the world has to offer. But the kingdom of God and the people of that kingdom have a direct line to the king. That's what we have to offer. Now that's not to say that we just pray and don't act. The book of Acts is going to make it clear that we pray boldly and as we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, we act boldly. But the action is neither void of power nor ahead of prayer. Those two things ought to be happening together. We're devoted to prayer. When that happens, we understand the need and the desire to grow in that. And so we pray that the Holy Spirit would magnify Jesus in powerful ways. We pray that the kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. We pray for God to move on behalf of his sin-defeating kingdom in our sin-stained world. We pray for the gospel to reach people who are far from the Lord. We pray for those who are sick. We pray for the leaders of the places where we live. We pray for wisdom and discernment about even the most minute matters of our daily lives. We pray for our friendships, our family relationships. We pray for our churches and their leaders and their ministries and on and on and on. But we don't pray in passing. We pray with devotion. 
we're also told that they devoted themselves to the fellowship. That's the second phrase there. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus as his people pursue genuine community over spiritual commodity. One of the things you take away as you read Acts 42 to 47 is that the church was not a commodity to be consumed. But for these early followers in Jesus, they viewed the church as a community to be part of, to foster, to invest in, to contribute to. We're told in the first phrase that the group was not sometimes together in fellowship, not some were interested in fellowship. We're told that they were devoted to being together. And that's actually fleshed out in verse 46 if you jump down. What did that, what's that mean? What's it look like? Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and they broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. We're told that their togetherness and their fellowship involves both large group and smaller group gatherings, often around tables in homes. Look, we understand enough about life in a divided society to understand that as this group of disparate people from different backgrounds is trying to come together, that that requires something more than just like us trying to overcome our fleshly impulses to allow trivial things to divide us. One of the things that's happening is that as these people from all around the Mediterranean are brought into the church, the Holy Spirit is knitting them together in a very powerful sort of way, a way that would make them actually long to be together in large group settings and in homes, around tables. One of the things we see throughout the New Testament is that as the Holy Spirit does that, it doesn't create uniformity among those people. Our differences are intentional and they matter, and they're powerful, but there's unity because something overrides everything else, and that's the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so they're together in the temple. That's where the apostles' teaching would have happened. We can think of those gatherings as somewhat akin to our Sunday morning worship services. We're not told how frequently those are happening, but it was typical within the Jewish rhythm to gather daily at the temple in the afternoon for prayer. And so it isn't outside the realm of plausibility to think that this sort of larger gathering is happening with a frequency that far outpaces our once a week Sunday morning worship services. The text doesn't tell us explicitly how often. It merely tells us that they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, that they're devoted to fellowship, and that every day they're gathering. Sometimes that's at the temple. Sometimes it's in homes. And one aspect of that fellowship within homes is that it is both sacramental and table fellowship. What do I mean by that? The phrase that Luke uses here when they're breaking bread from house to house is the exact same phrase he uses when Jesus explains the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of Luke. Now, I don't think that this means that when they get together in each other's homes, they're just taking the Lord's Supper. Like you pop in for about 10 minutes, you get out some juice and some wine, spend a little bit of time in prayer. Here's his body, here's his blood, eat, drink, good to see you, let's move on. I think that they were enjoying Aunt Judy's pot roast and Betty's pie and Kevin's smoked brisket. Like I think they're just having meals together. 
But the New Testament understanding of the Lord's Supper is that it took place within the confines of a larger meal. We do it within the confines of worship services. They did it in the confines of let's get together and eat. So I do think this includes taking communion or the Lord's Supper. And why is that significant? Because their gathering together is more than a group of people coming together because they share an interest. It's more than a large group of people, 3,000 of them, being sort of shoved together like a middle school mixer where you just kind of stand along the wall and just hope for the thing to end (laughs) so that you can go about the rest of your day. Look, I'm an introvert. I'm fine standing along the wall and waiting for the thing to end. But I think there's more than that happening. This group of people from different places and different backgrounds understands that they've been brought together by something that's greater than their differences. They've been brought together by Jesus, the King, whose blood has saved them. And in both their structured times and their large group times, and in their unstructured times in homes, they're magnifying Jesus as the apostles teach, but also as they take the Lord's Supper. Part of being together during those times was to recognize that the one who knit them together by the power of his blood was more powerful and more significant than any of their potential cultural differences. In that way, Jesus is magnified not just within the individuals as they pray and study the scriptures, but also in the community as they gather together in unity. Look at verse 43. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus as his people pursue God's transformative power over their natural ability. We're told that these signs and wonders are happening through the apostles. My aim this morning is not to answer every potential question about whether or not miraculous gifts are still at work today or if they ended with the apostles. If you have questions about that, again, the email is khuber at lcfliberty.org. Those are questions that we can hold loosely. And even in a one local church, we can have differences opinions on how to answer each and every one of those questions and still have unity together and worship together. I simply want to point out that the apostles did not rely upon their natural giftings to draw a crowd. We're really good at this in today's day and age and in the American, particularly the suburban American church. You just get the right person up front with the right charisma and the right speaking gifts. You use the right marketing strategies. You get your social media strategy right. You get the right staging and lighting and band and you engage in the best vision casting and leadership practices and you can draw a big crowd in this country. Now that's not to say that any of those things are inherently bad because we should seek to do the very best we can with the gifts and the talents and the skills and the resources that God has entrusted us with. We want to be wise and effective with what he has given us. But if we think that the power to magnify Jesus and grow or shepherd the church ends with the newest or latest leadership book, then we've done something terribly wrong. We must rely on God to do what only God can do, which is to draw people to himself, save them from their sin, transform them, but also to do things that are miraculous, like heal people, and deliver them from the bondage of their sin. That is power that God has. No natural human gifts 
can make those things happen. If everything that we're doing within the life of the local church can be explained by the talents of a handful of gifted people, then what we have is not the Jesus magnifying church that's powered by the Holy Spirit. We have an an organization that's really no different than any other. It's just a collection of people. Verse 44. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. The Holy Spirit magnifies Jesus as his people pursue mutual generosity over material gain. The verbiage is intentional here. Again, I'm not trying to answer every question about what this statement or the Bible's commands about generosity in general mean in terms of societal structures, governmental systems. This statement in Luke is about neither of those. It's about the personal dispositions within the early followers of Jesus. They were radically, lovingly, willingly, cheerfully, mutually generous. The gist of what's happening within this early church is that these people appear to have moved from what is fleshly and default, which is, I wish I had more of that, or I wish I had more of what you have, to something that's been rearranged by the Holy Spirit and now falls under the rule and the reign of Christ, which is to say, I'm happy to use what is mine for God's mission and the good of God's people. I understand that all of this is his, not primarily mine. And notice that this goes well beyond the common understood Jewish or Old Testament idea of the tithe, which is to give 10% of what you have. Look, the thrust is that if someone had 14 widgets and someone else was struggling to buy food, the one with the widgets sold a few so the other could eat. If someone's need was larger, then the passage tells us that the disposition of the group was to be generous on even grander scales. We're told they're selling property in order to make up for the needs of individuals within the church. The Holy Spirit is working in such a way within that group that Jesus is magnified as the people within this church loosen their grip on their stuff, learn to see it as God's stuff to be used for God's mission and for the good of God's people. Jesus gave all of himself and these early followers of Jesus understands that that means that they need to be willing to give of themselves. That's Holy Spirit kind of work changing us from being hoarders of what we think is ours to being generous dispensers of what we know is God's. It's also worth noting that the closeness of their fellowship means that they're aware of the needs that exist within the body. When we sort of keep the fellowship and the community of the church, the relationships here at arm's length, we aren't able to even know what needs exist among us. Now, on the one hand, that kind of feels like it lets us off the hook. Well, I I mean, I didn't know that person was in need, so obviously I couldn't help them out, so that's not my fault. It's not my problem. But on the other hand, when we keep those relationships at arm's length and we don't know what needs exist, the Holy Spirit isn't able to use sort of the nitty-gritty life of relationships in the church to sanctify our view of our possessions. When we treat the church as a commodity to be consumed rather than a place that exists for the glorification of Jesus and the salvation of the nations, and we just go to consume, 
The Holy Spirit isn't able to use local churches to help break the power of materialism that exists within us. God is glorified in the giving of what we have for the good of his mission and the good of his people. Life in the local church is defined by the Jesus-magnifying work of the Holy Spirit among God's people, where the word of God takes precedent over the thoughts of people, where dependence upon God takes precedence over self-reliance, where genuine Jesus-centered community takes precedence over consuming a spiritual commodity, where God's transformative power is pursued over just the use of natural human abilities, where loving mutual generosity takes precedence over materialistic selfish gain. This is the work that the Holy Spirit does among these people. And the result is that Jesus is magnified in their midst and out into their society as every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Now just read back through the passage with me because kind of baked into it, Luke is telling us what this does within the community. They devoted themselves to prayer. Or they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. There's awe and praise in this church because God is powerful and glorious and worthy of worship. There's joy in this early church because God is providing for and caring for. He's present in and through this church. They enjoy the favor of all the people. Now, that doesn't mean all the people just inside the church. It means all the people inside the church and out into the community in Jerusalem. Because what's happening within the confines of their fellowship is undeniably good, even for those outside the fellowship. And there's growth. Because God is continuing to draw people to himself through the Jesus-magnifying work of the Holy Spirit among the people of God. And we need these sorts of churches now more than ever. In a post-COVID world, the church all around the world, but specifically in America, is trying to figure out how to regain its footing. Trying to figure out how it is that we get back to some sort of like pre-COVID normal. And I'm just naive enough to believe that as the church labors to do that, what can spring up in its place is something more biblical and more beautiful than what existed before. That the goal isn't what before COVID. The goal is the most expressly biblical picture of the church as is possible by the empowering of the Holy Spirit. That's the thing we're after. The goal is not just to get back to the numbers of people that attended church in America before the pandemic set in. The goal is to get to something that is robustly biblical so that Jesus is magnified out of these places to the ends of the earth. That's what we're after. Social media, 
contentious and divided American civil and political life, scandals within the walls of the church, a general ethos of rugged American individualism, make a picture like Acts 2, 42 to 47, both simultaneously invigorating and wildly confusing. Like we read this and we're like, how do I get that? Can that even exist? Like we read something like this and we think, oh my gosh, that's amazing and impossible. We have today unlimited access to shallow community. You can have as much skin deep, shallow community as you want. Social media makes that possible. The internet and phones within our hands make it so that if you just want surface level community, you can get as much of it as you want. But what study after study of people from all ages and demographic groups reveal is that what we're all longing for is something rich and vibrant in the flesh and deep. Jay Kim in his book, Analog Church, says this. This is the ultimate paradox of the digital age. At the moment in human history when technology allows us to be more connected than ever, we're so very far apart to the point that our very understanding of community has devolved into a sort of collection of isolated individuals. The Acts 2 kind of church that's described in 42 to 47 is anything but a collection of isolated individuals. It is an unfathomably, unfathomably beautiful and utterly foreign organism. We think of the church and we think of an organization that there's a group of leaders or something that puts together a body of people and imposes a culture upon those people whereby I can show up and get all the stuff that Acts 42 to 47 promises me. What Acts 42 to 47 promises you is that as the Holy Spirit transforms individuals, the result is what sprang to life in Acts 42 to 47. And the whole point is that as you read this passage, this is utterly impossible were it not for the Holy Spirit. You can have as many social organizations and social clubs as you want in your life and all of them will fail to meet this because they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what makes this place different. And by this place, I don't mean LCF. I mean the church, the collected people of God. The whole idea is that it's impossible but we have the Holy Spirit who's working to magnify Jesus in the lives of God's people through the collection of God's people out to the unreached. That's what we have here. And so implication number one is this. Acts 2 churches are made up of Acts 2 people. We want the church to be what we see in Acts chapter 2. But most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, want the church to be what we see in Acts chapter two in service of me. Like I want to show up and reap all the benefits of an Acts chapter two, 42 to 47 church. I wanna be able to walk in and have all of that available to me. So it'll serve my interests, make disciples of my kids, change the things I don't like about my spouse, align with my social sensibilities, entertain me on Sunday mornings, look snazzy on social media so that I can share it with my friends, and not impose upon me, not require of me, and have good coffee. We have good coffee nailed. But outside of that, everything about that is backwards. 
And here's the really unfortunate part. This is a reciprocal relationship. Because the reality is that people on my side of the relationship have unfortunately bought the lie and fueled those desires by treating church as an entity to serve customers rather than as a place to serve the mission and the purpose of God among lost people as he collects to himself a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And so people in my position have utilized churches to serve their own ambitions, build their own platforms, give them a place to be long-winded in front of people who have no choice but to sit and to listen. And that reciprocal sort of swirling yuck gave rise to what we have in the American church today. So the answer is not, let's go back pre-COVID. The answer is, let's be filled with the Holy Spirit on both sides of the relationship. So that as I allow the Holy Spirit to empower me, and as our staff allows the Holy Spirit to empower them, and as you allow the Holy Spirit to empower you, Jesus is magnified in these places and the gospel is proclaimed. And what happens in us and among us and through us is something that makes Jesus look really, really beautiful. But that hinges on Acts 2 people. Acts 2 people that lead these places and Acts 2 people that fill these places. And that's radically different than what has existed in the American church, unfortunately. We treat church as a commodity. I create it like a commodity so you can consume it like a commodity so that more people will consume it like a commodity so that it can get bigger and my platform can get bigger and everyone can just celebrate, look at how cool our church is instead of all of us celebrating, look at how incredible Jesus is. What starts in Acts chapter two as 3,000 sort of like disparate individuals is anything other than a commodity. It is a Holy Spirit empowered community that makes the gospel look glorious. And that same Holy Spirit still doing the same work among God's people. Tony Marita, a pastor, says this, that devoted implies work and accountability and reminds us the community is a two-way commitment. So I'm gonna put a list of questions that are his up on the screen. They're pretty small. Take a photo of it on your phone. You can zoom in as much as you need to. But he asks some diagnostic questions. He says, could it be that you love the idea of community more than actual community? In his classic work, Life Together, Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, those who love their dream of a Christian community more than the community itself, become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest. Question two, are you complaining about a lack of community instead of asserting yourself to serve and to love others? Do you show up to events and meetings regularly? Do you arrive early enough to interact with people on Sunday, or are you slipping in late and excusing yourself early? Are you involved in others' lives throughout the week? Are you sensitive to the needs of your brothers and sisters? Are you grateful for them? Have you told them what they mean to you? Before we finish, I want to be clear on one aspect of this. All of the conversation about sort of accountability in the life of individuals within the church does not 
do anything to excuse church leaders who abuse that accountability, who take their authority and wield it in heavy-handed ways so as to impose unbiblical ideas of what it means to be part of a church on the people who attend their church. Acts 2 people include the leaders that lead those churches. And when the person who leads a church is no longer operating in that sort of way, they should not be leading the church. When my aim is no longer the magnification of Jesus empowered by the Holy Spirit, I do not deserve to lead this place any longer. When my exercise of the authority of the office of pastor is out of bounds and imposes upon the people of this church something that is not biblical, I don't deserve to be in this position any longer. And so accountability to being asked two kinds of people goes both ways. Observation implication number two. This is where we'll end. Acts two churches are empowered by the Holy Spirit's Jesus-magnifying work. That's what makes them Acts two churches. That's why this is so beautiful. Repent and be baptized. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That promise is for you. 3,000 people were added to them and the Holy Spirit is doing this radically powerful and transformative work in that group of people, so much so that people continue to be added to their number daily. So some more questions. These aren't gonna be on the screen. They're not worded nearly as well as Tony's because he's an author and I'm me. So these, this, here are some more questions. Are we submitted to Jesus as king and open to the sanctifying, Jesus-magnifying work of the Holy Spirit in our lives? I mean really submitted. Like as the Holy Spirit seeks to magnify Jesus in me, among us, and through us, are we submitted to that? Do we as a church long for the Holy Spirit to make us into the kinds of people who make up the kind of church that's described in Acts chapter two? Are we praying for fresh fillings and outpourings of the Holy Spirit? Are we pleading for the Holy Spirit's work among us? I wanna end by going back to one of the very first points. Let's be a people who are devoted to prayer first and foremost about one thing, that the Holy Spirit would do Jesus magnifying work in us, among us, and through us. Not passing prayer, devoted prayer. Specifically for myself, I pray that that would start with me. I've been called in this season to lead this place. And however imperfectly that expresses itself through me as a broken individual, I pray that the Holy Spirit would magnify Jesus. That I am submitted to his work to glorify himself in me, among us, and to the ends of the earth. My prayer for us as a church, Liberty Christian Fellowship, is that each of us could genuinely say, start with me, Lord. Magnify Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in me. And as we all come together, he'd be doing that among us and through us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's stand up and sing.